So, uh, uh, hi, it's Graham here. Sorry to interrupt your podcast listening like this, but uh, I wondered if you could do us a little favour. I haven't told Carol I'm going to do this, and frankly, I'm not sure she's going to find out. Let's maybe keep it that way, shall we? Uh, I don't think she listens to the podcast, so she won't hear that I've tacked this on to the beginning. But the European Security Blogger Awards, they're about to happen, and Smashing Security has been nominated in a couple of categories. Huzzah, huzzah! You can vote in the awards for your favourite security blogs and security podcasts, hint, hint, but you've only got a few days before the voting closes. So do it today. Do it now. Hit pause. Oh, not before I've told you the URL. It's smashingsecurity.com slash vote. That will redirect you through magic to the voting form. And, well, hey, made the best podcast co-hosted for the last six or so years by a Brit and a Canadian win. Um, yeah, over to you. Smashingsecurity.com slash vote. Thank you very much. We love you all, uh, at least the people who vote for us. Uh, but for now, back to your normal service. And uh, sorry about this interruption. I've never drunk a pint of beer in my life. Oh, wow. Nothing like a pandemic to start. That's why my body's a temple. Well done, well done. Your halo is blinding me. Smashing Security, episode 179. Deepfake Jay-Z and beer apps spilling your data with Carol Terrio and Graham Cluley. Hello, hello, and welcome to Smashing Security, episode 179. My name's Graham Cluley. And I'm Carol Terrio. Hi, Carol. Hi, Graham. You haven't said hi to me in a while on the show. But, you know, I like to mix it up a little bit. And we've mixed it up this week by bringing someone onto the show who's never been onto the show before. But he's no stranger to podcasts because it is the man behind the Power Corrupts podcast, Brian Class. Hello. Yay. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, one of my pick of the weeks a few weeks ago. So thank you so much, Brian, for, for coming on the show and for creating it. I'm flattered. Brian, for those who don't know and maybe haven't heard Power Corrupts and more for them, can you give a brief premise about what the podcast is all about? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I sort of talk about it. I conceptualize it as if This American Life and Radiolab had a very sinister baby that was obsessed with the dark side <laughs> of politics. Um, it's, it's one episode a week where we uh, focus on you know everything from conspiracy theories to election rigging, disinformation, propaganda, uh, pandemics, biological warfare, all sorts of stuff. And it's it's a scripted narrative driven podcast, um, so it's it's you know polished and brings together a lot of interesting experts uh, and a lot of people who have actually lived these things, which is which is fun. And the big news today, I'll, I'll say, I was very very flattered. We uh, were nominated as a finalist for the smartest podcast of the year by the British Podcast Awards. Yay! Hooray! Congratulations. <laughs> that is a worthy title to covet, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah, I yeah. was very happy about that. So Brilliant. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, so uh, I had a question for you about your podcast, actually. So I'm a big fan, and but I saw that you had one titled Pandemic, and I saw that it came out March, right? So I was thinking, there's a lot of work that goes into each of your episodes. So had you thought about doing that beforehand? Because it does fit into your wheelhouse quite comfortably. Or was this something that you uh, reacted to because the world was melting? No, I, I did it. I did it before, and I have the receipts because I announced the series on uh, on Twitter, and I listed the pandemic one in the original trailer, which which came out in January. So the interview that I did with the person who does epidemiological modeling of pandemics, I did that 
when it was starting to become clear that this was coming to Europe and, and perhaps the United States. But the other stuff, there's the, there's a really interesting bit I did about this village in uh, the UK where they effectively voluntarily locked down during the bubonic plague in 1665 yeah. and all died, uh, mostly <laughs> died, uh, to save their, their sort of compatriots. Uh, I went up there before, before any of this was known. So yeah, it was, it, it was sort of fortuitous. Yeah, in a very dark way. (laughs) Yeah, fortuitous, or perhaps a little bit creepy. Brian, you may have just stirred a new conspiracy theory inside me that maybe you seem to know a bit too much. Maybe it helps to promote your podcast. Yeah, well, if only if only that little village had a five G mast, then we would know. What's coming up on the show this week, Krill? First, let's thank this week's sponsors, Boxcryptor, Immersive Labs, and LastPass. Their support helps us give you this show for free. Now, on today's bumper episode, Graham tells us about an app that puts military folks at risk. Brian reviews how South Korea handled a recent outbreak and whether we could do the same. And I am going to look for the line between video satire and deepfakes. Plus, we have a special interview with Rachel Stockton from Log Me In. So stay tuned after the show to find out how you can better protect yourself online for free. All this and much more coming up on this episode of Smashing Security. Now, chums, chums, are you drinkers? Uh, yes. Yes. Ah, see, I'm not. I am actually have a beer right now, actually. You're having a beer yeah. at the moment. Yes, look, 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 I'm going to clink it against the microphone. There you go. <laughs> Fud. Um, well, if you are a beer drinker, Carol, then maybe you would want to use an app like Untapped. That's Untapped without an E. I'm not quite Did sure you, why. I know how to drink beer. <laughs> I don't need someone to teach me. It's not to help you drink beer. It's a geosocial networking service. That's how it describes itself. It's a mobile phone application that allows you as a drinker to check in online as you drink beer. And whoa, whoa. I don't understand. So, okay. So I, I crack open a brewski in my house. Right. And then what? Get the app open. Then you get the app open and you're thinking, oh, I'd rather like to tell my online beer drinking friends that I'm currently having this beer and I'll rate this beer or I'll rate this hostelry. And so it's a free app for iOS and Android. Let's you discover and share beer, follow other drinkers. <laughs> And it's just done out of the love of their hearts. <laughs> okay. Well, people people are doing it because I guess they're obsessed with beer, right? Okay. So they drink beer, they earn badges, you share pics of your beer. Surely you've done this sort of thing, Brian, haven't you? You haven't done this? <laughs> no, I'm afraid not. I, You're uh, missing I've been out, missing mate. out. How can I? How can I get more followers? Do I need to get some cat, like some craft beers? And then Become then... an alcoholic. Seems like <laughs> the answer according to this. This one. is what the pandemic was designed for, right? To be sharing your drinking capabilities. You post reviews of the beer. You can see where your friends are drinking beer. Oh, they're drinking at home at the moment. Beer, 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 beer. <laughs> so do we have? Do we have an app? Is there like a Negronied app without the you know like uh, apostrophe D as well, or a <laughs> old fashioned without the E at the end? Oh yeah, you might you might be, might be onto something there. I mean, they have. Haven't kept it too old school. This, this this app has really kept up with the times because imagine you're drinking a beer and catastrophe, you finish your beer. What you can do with the Untapped app is you can scan the barcode on your beer. Okay, I'm looking right now. And the app will hail an Uber taxi to take you Shut to where up. you can drink more of that beer. I would love someone up in the you know northern coast of Scotland, right in the Hebrides, somewhere like that. Isle of Wight, try this out. Could wow. cost you a few quid, couldn't it? Anyway, so this is clearly for people who are really into their beer. And as we know, people who are really into their beer are really into their beer. Well, 
investigative website Bellingcat, I don't know if you're familiar with them. They've done some extraordinary work in the past mm. um, using open source intelligence. They've looked into the criminal underworld. Uh, do you remember the Russian poisonings in Salisbury? Uh, where those yeah, chaps yeah, yeah. came over and they, they claimed to be uh, big lovers of the cathedral and knew how many metres high it was, so they visited <laughs> twice. Um, they've investigated the use of weapons in the Syrian civil war. Well, now they've turned their attention to beer drinking. Okay. And they say... <laughs> again, Do I have to worry? They're on pandemic as well, right? They're on lockdown, the guys at Bellingcat, and they're thinking, what can we do to amuse ourselves? So they've looked at the untapped app. And what they found was that it could be used to track military personnel, locate secret military installations, and even offer a glimpse at sensitive military documents. Fancy that. Okay, question. Yes. Is it the fact that if a military personnel used this app, this information could be garnered, or is the app specifically designed to try and snarfle up military info? Oh, it's not a malicious app. No, this, this has been designed by beer drinkers for beer drinkers, and they're all good people who believe in real ale. But even the military drink beer. They Apparently they do, yes. Hopefully yeah. not while they're on duty or if they're in charge of any important military equipment. But uh, according to the team at Bellingcat, all you need to do to find individuals working at military organisations or intelligence centres and track their general whereabouts is do a bit of digging deep into untapped public data and cross-reference it with other social media. And through this method, they were able to find, for instance, people who had checked in at Camp Peary, which is a place in uh, Virginia, I think, where, where they're doing like covert CIA training. And uh, from there, they were able to track untapped users as they visited bases and presumably bars in the United States and across the Middle East. They found they logged over 700 check-ins at 500 unique locations. Uh, there were even people who were checking in near the Guantanamo Bay Detention Centre and other people who were also going to the Pentagon. So th this history of people moving around was all being revealed by the untapped app. Okay, but did the Bellingcat people yes. tell the untapped people and indeed the military that this was happening before they trumpeted their news? Oh, yes. They've been in touch with everybody who that, whose Good. profiles they came across um, to say to them, hey, you might want to lock down your settings a little bit. Right. Um, because sometimes the snafus which happened were quite bad because people don't just like to drink and rate their beer. They also like to take drunken photographs of their beer bottles. And sometimes, and this may surprise and bare you both. bottoms as well. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I think there's a different app for that, Well, Carole. it depends how many beers they've had. But, you know? <laughs> but yep. apparently people will take a picture of their beer bottle and they're a little bit careless and they'll leave it also in the same frame. Their debit cards, plane tickets, ID cards. Social security card. Right. Military documents, even an F-16 fighter jet. Um, and its location, all revealed on Untapped, because I guess they're sort of blearily sort of taking the photograph or whatever and and, and making a goof. Hmm. Plus, you can find out if someone has a really bad taste in beer. Right. <laughs> I've never drunk a pint of beer in my life. Oh wow! Well done, well done. I know, aren't I impressed? Your halo is blinding me. That's why my body's a temple. Nothing like a pandemic to start. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so who? So do you? Don't you think there's a bit of shared responsibility here? So on the one okay. side, the military personnel or the users of the app need to think about what they're taking pictures of, right? 
Uh-huh. So, yeah, yeah. Gonna, so don't take a picture of your beer bottle on top of your passport open. Yes. Right? Are you suggesting that the untapped app should actually display that warning before you take your photograph? No, so I, just, think, just I be- think users should be smart enough to figure that out. I do kind of think that would be the responsibility of the user. So what did untapped say when Bell and Cat got in touch with them? They say, ooh, cheap, we're going to fix that right now. Well, actually, untapped aren't going to change anything. Ooh. Because untapped has already decent privacy settings. And you can set your profile to be private easily. And users have to consciously select the location which they check into. And their opinion is that they've already set this all up to be as private as required. It's down to the ruddy users. And maybe what needs to happen is some major general to speak to the people in the military and say, stop posting that kind of information onto social media apps. Isn't this also a story about how the power of opt-in versus opt-out is mm. so important? Right. And mm. you just need to have, you know, a critical mass arguing for opt-out of privacy settings rather than opt-in. Yeah, I mean, all of these apps, of course, because they want to build up the network and they want to be as attractive as possible to new recruits. Of course. They always automatically opt you into all of these you know, they, they basically have privacy turned off by default, don't yeah, they? That's, I think that's such a point underlying, though. I think most people think, hey, if I just stick with the default options, mm. they're going to be looking after me. As long as I don't change anything, I'm running it as I should. But exactly to your point, they don't make it so it's the safest it can be for you. It's so it can use as many features as possible. Yep, it's, it's absolutely true. And we, we do need to have a sort of, uh, I don't know, some sort of mental shift when we use these apps and when we log into these websites as to what their plans to do with our data and to double check the settings. Of course, sometimes the settings change without us even realising. Yeah, this and is from the uh, Facebook guy. What are you using again? Facebook? Facebook portal, which I bought for the in-laws, yes. Well, not for the in-laws. You have one in your house too. Well, yes, in order to communicate with them. we, we, yeah. we have Telephone doesn't work. Okay, yeah. here's the thing, Carol. The Facebook portal, I'll give you an update. It's actually been turned off and it's no longer being used. And the reason is, having had two portal calls with the in-laws to keep in touch with them during the pandemic, um, their dog ate the remote control Good. for their Facebook so portal. So you've been saved so- by, you've been saved yet again by your canine friends. <laughs> That's true. Now, the Pentagon, of course, they banned Fitbits and GPS tracking. You remember the Strava app? I think we spoke about it before mm-hmm, and how indeed. that was logging how people were running around <laughs> runways and military bases and submarines and things like that. So the guidance from the Pentagon is that you shouldn't be using these kind of apps. But I suspect apps like Untapped are sneaking through because your initial thought wouldn't be this is something which is tracking my location. But Truth is, there's lots of apps out there which are asking you to check in and share information. So maybe they need to have a rethink on that. I think, you know, I think it's one of these things where it's it's astonishing still how much of this type of stuff comes out from groups like Bellingcat, which are doing amazing work. Yes. But why why is it that it takes their investigation to uncover these loopholes that could genuinely pose security risks for an entire country? Why isn't the government spending money to, you know, as you say, you've got to have your personal device, but... You can say, here are the apps that you either couldn't, can't use, or if you do, you have to change these settings. And then I think it's a reasonable balance. Well, I wonder what else Bellingcat are currently investigating, which led them to look at the untapped app. You know, what criminals or scoundrels are they currently after? I think and- they have brainstorming sessions, right, where they're all in a meeting room, or well, in the old days, and someone would say, let's put beer and military together and see what happens. And then, and then they go down that route. It's That's possible. how they do it. 
Yeah. It would be amazing though if there were actually like beers that had you know national like like clear national markers. So like you know in in Ukraine you end up seeing the pockets of the Russian soldiers based on the untapped app. You know what I mean? Or it's the because there's a specific type that the Ukrainians don't drink and the Russians do. And imagine if this information is then sold on to beer advertiser to say this is where your markets are. <laughs> That's an interesting. Actually, I wonder how mm. Untapped makes its money. Yeah. I, I have no idea. Not being a boozer like you, saying everyone's drinking Beck's beer down in you know mm. blah blah. Oh, we've all become so cynical, haven't we? We're smart. Thank goodness for that. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. Brian, what have you got for us this week? Well, I've been looking at this uh, this story coming out of South Korea, which is you know South Korea sort of had a. Uh, a moment in the spotlight, so to speak, early on when it had what looked like a serious outbreak and now has had uh, around 250 deaths total from COVID-19. And there's this story that I think is just, it was this gut check moment for me is basically you have them reopen because, you know, the country did pretty well with dealing with coronavirus and a whole bunch of young people flocked to these nightclubs where social distancing is, is a pipe dream. And a couple hundred of them got COVID-19 there. Hmm. Which, you know, completely predictable, uh, unavoidable. Maybe they should have kept the nightclubs closed. But what's astonishing is the next part of the story, which is that using a series of different digital tracking mechanisms, including purchases made at the nightclubs, um, asking for voluntary phone data from carriers, and also uh, some CCTV, they were able to find tens of thousands of potential contacts from these couple hundred cases. And with the span of, uh, I think, less than a week, uh, tested the last number I saw was 46,000 people wow. in those potential clusters. And the reason why it was such a striking thing for me was to say, you know, could any North American or European country currently do this? And I think the answer is quite clearly no. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't think it's just a technical thing. I think there is obviously technical barriers. I think there's testing capacity barriers, et cetera. But I think there's also just sort of competence in government, trust in government, uh, questions about aversion to privacy invasion and cultural elements that all come together that mean that this really effective public health intervention is probably not going to be something we see anytime soon in European countries or the United States or Canada. And it raises the point of sort of, well, okay, but there's trade-offs here, right? Because South Korea has, uh, as I say, around 250 deaths. The U.S. is about to, as at the point we're recording this, is about to be at 100,000. And at some point you start to think, okay, what, what freedoms are we willing to give up relative to the possibility of highly invasive tracking around an outbreak and a pandemic? And it's going to put all these issues much more center stage, I suspect. Yeah, because so I was looking at the COVID apps that they had been organizing in different countries a few weeks back on the show. And Mm. one of the countries I looked at was South Korea. And what was interesting about it is they were quite impacted by the MERS outbreak. And they changed their privacy laws at that time, which has been very useful for them during this scenario, because they are using a centralized network, basically to to track everybody. But one of the big things they're doing is they can basically look at banks, right? They're getting it from loads of different sources. So they, they're really tracking individuals. So it's a really interesting privacy versus disease 
point of view, which puts me in a really difficult situation, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> you I don't want it, people to die. It's, right? But it's also really astonishing because South Korea was a dictatorship not long ago. I mean, it, yeah. it's, we're a couple decades away from its transition to democracy. So like the people that are aware of the risks of over overbearing states, there's no question it's in many adults, you know, life experiences. Yeah. And yet there's this sort of I don't know if it's cultural or because of the MERS outbreak or whatever, but there's this acceptance that this is a rational and reasonable response. And the, and you think about the variation even within the United States, within individual states, right? Because some states are much more willing to adopt this sort of uh, policy and others are so, so against it. And, you know, of course, showing up to <laughs> protest with anti-tank rocket launchers and things like <laughs> that to show their disdain for it. So you're going to have quite a big, I think, variation internationally in terms of, how this pans out if this becomes the new normal. I mean, if, if the, if the totally. vaccine arrives in September, October, it's a different story. But if this is the next 15, 18 months, there's going to be massive variation on this question, I think. And it's an interesting point of view from a power play perspective, too, because whoever gets it really right and can kind of show it through numbers and kind of over the years be able to say, you see, we did this, that was right. We did this, but this was right. They can become quite a, a leader in terms of being able to deal with these things in I the future. I think regardless of the results, some people will be claiming that they were the best. And <laughs> Do you they, think so? They have done remarkably better than any other country. <laughs> Don't look at the numbers. <laughs> and the only problems that they've experienced have been because they've been doing too much testing. If they didn't do so much testing, <laughs> there wouldn't be as many cases. Oh. <sighs> Maybe, maybe. Uh, in, do we know how popular the Untapped app is in South Korea? I wonder whether that may, maybe it has an additional function, uh, which is helping people. But it, it is astonishing, isn't it, how some countries seem to have really succeeded in this, and and others are floundering. Well, I, I think one other point that I just I think it's worth mentioning is we'd be in a very dire state of narratives. Uh, between democracy and authoritarianism, were it not for South Korea and Taiwan, for example. Because mm. you look at the sort of state interventions that have taken public health seriously early on, and with the exception of, I, I guess you could also add, of course, Australia and New Zealand, though those countries are, you know, they're isolated in different ways. They face probably lower risk to begin with. Okay. But but you, you have those sort of four, right? You have Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, and South Korea. And finally, you can say, look, it's not authoritarianism, it's competent open government that's effective right. and, and state capacity and trust in government. I think trust is hugely important so you can accept some of these things. But uh, you know, otherwise, without those four cases, you'd have China going around the globe and saying, look, you know, the US, the UK, France, Italy, Spain, they all had mass death. And those are the countries that you're supposed to aspire to. And, and so I think it's really important to make clear it's not democracy. It's just whether the individual leaders of those countries uh, took it seriously early on. And I think that's that's really why I wanted to bring up this story. Mm. How's your feelings of trust with Bojo? I mean, I think it's, it's tricky because you, as an American living in the UK, you constantly are torn between US politics and UK politics, which mm. has been a very dire thing to be torn between for the last three or four years. <laughs> Tell but, us about it. But, you know, it's it's something where... You look at Johnson, and, and originally I think there were massive mistakes, and mm. pandemics are unforgiving. So if you make massive mistakes in this critical first month, first few weeks even. Yeah, he was it, flippant, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, I mean, it, it, mm. it just it magnifies the death toll massively. That being said, I think he's woken up to the risks yeah. uh, by the fact that he was hospitalized. Right? Yeah, yeah, he got a good fish slap in the face there, yeah. didn't he? And, and, I think, and I think since that moment, and I think indeed since the lockdown, there's been some you know mess-ups on messaging, some very unclear advice, et cetera. But you compare it to Trump, and and you're sort of like, well, you know, they're really trying in the UK. Like this is a yeah. genuine effort. They're not yeah. pretending it's fake. They're 
not hypothesizing about various drugs that don't work and possibly kill you or putting disinfectant in your body or a powerful light. These things are, so to me, it's one of these things where it's the perpetual lowering of the bar, but I sort of look at the UK and say, well, it could be much, much worse. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. I agree. There you go. Well, cherry. (laughs) Don't worry. Mine's fun. (laughs) Carol, what have you got for us this week? Okay, we're starting off with a music quiz, boys. No way. Not music. No, we're starting off with a quiz. So I'm going to play something for you, and I want you to tell me who does this sound like? Who is this voice? Okay. Okay, give me a moment. I like big butts, and I cannot lie. You other brothers can deny that when a girl walks in with an itty bitty waist and a round thing in your face, oh, you get sounds strong. like Bill Clinton. That's Bill Clinton. Okay, good. One more. Here's little Ella Billy. <laughs> Here's another one. Who is this? Okay. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it's not oh. in the mind to suffer the slings and that rules of a Is it someone like Kanye West or someone like that? Or? Yeah, it's Jay Z. Uh, well guy, done, yeah. Graham. Well Jay-Z. done. I wouldn't yes. really have known that, but it just sounded his sort of attitude. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> well, the problem is that none of these people are Bill Clinton or Jay Z. Right. What? These are clips from a channel called Voice Synthesis. This is a YouTube channel. Now I've put it in the show notes if you guys want to have a click on through to oh, the okay. channel. All right. So you guys can see the playlist and stuff and you can see what's going on. Now, for you listeners at home, this is basically a site that um, purports and proudly states that it senses voices and pairs them with a non-expectant text. So you have like Bob Dylan covering Britney Spears. You have Frank Sinatra crewing Dancing Queen. You have various presidents reciting rap lyrics. You even have George W. Bush take on 50 Cent's In the Club. I'm looking at it right now. You've got Bob Ross in here. Yeah. Well, one of your heroes. Kobe. One of my heroes. Oh, Mr. Rogers, who's yeah. a big American icon, isn't yes. he? Or he was? was one of my, he was the, all through my childhood he was around, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. goodness me. So what's interesting is check the number of subscribers to the channel. Okay. Um, how do I do that? Jeez. <laughs> oh, 50,000. Are you surprised by how small it is? Well. Let me carry on with my story and you can tell me if you think okay. uh, if that plays a role in anything of this. Mm-hmm. Now, you can see on the, on the page, you can see that at the end of each title of any video, it says in brackets, voice synthesis. Yes. Right? And so, and then underneath in the description, it says the voice in this video is entirely computer generated using a text-to-speech model trained on the speech patterns of Jay-Z or whoever is mimicking at that in the particular video. Apparently, the YouTuber behind the Jay-Z deepfake says they were created by Tacotron 2. This is the teach-to-speech program from Google. And a lot of these have got like hundreds of thousands of views, haven't they? I mean, some, some of them are quite popular. Yeah, interesting. Question I have for you too. Do you, so the term deepfake, do you think at this moment, do you think that's fair? So they're not videos. It's just the audio. It's almost like you're at a presentation or something. So there's a slideshow mm. and then you hear the voice of um, the purported person behind it. Uh, uh, what, do I think deepfake is a, Correct way of describing it. Is yeah. That, is that the question? Like, is it an impersonation? Is it a deep fake? Like, the, the way I understood deep fakes is that they have to use uh, generative adversarial neural networks to generate content. Mm. But I understood it as, as these GANs were used to um, create new content using machine learning and AI. Uh, again, I'm a political scientist, so I'm waiting outside of my, my comfort zone. Right now, 
there is a bit of a brouhaha going on between Jay-Z and this YouTube channel. So according to Ars Technica, right, this was uh, April 26th, a new video, this is how it all came to light, a new video was posted on this channel right. saying that YouTube had taken down the Jay-Z-related videos. So there was two of them that he'd created. One was Shakespeare's To Be or Not To Be, which we were listening to earlier. And then there's a Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. And apparently the request came from Jay-Z's company, uh, Rock Nation. Now, the way in which voice synthesis tell their followers was rather novel. They put together a video featuring the simulated voices of Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan, JFK, and FDR to explain this ban. <laughs> the channel was created by an individual hobbyist with a huge amount of free time on his hands, as well as an interest in machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies. He would like to emphasize that all of the videos on this channel were... Right, okay, yes. Um, now, is that an understandable response? Because this guy is kind of saying, I'm thinking, he's going, look, I have been super clear on my channel that I'm doing this for fun and I'm taking a synth voice, not the real person, and what's the big well, deal? Well, the thing is, a lot of people could see these videos without seeing the video description, couldn't mm -hmm. they? If yep. they're shared on social media, I suspect you might see the title, maybe? But having speech synthesis in brackets at the end, you might only see the start of the title on your mobile phone. Mm-hmm. I'm a little disappointed they didn't get Mr. Rogers to join in on the rebuttal as well. That would have been a bit classier. The original video might have a disclaimer, but people who do not have a sophisticated understanding of fake video, fake audio, mm. will not see it. And I think the you know what Photoshop did for photos was that people started to understand that it could be doctored easily. And I don't think that most people have made that leap. Like m most people who are not dialed into this world of disinformation have made the leap to understand how easy it is becoming to do the same with video and audio. And I, I had this debate. There's a, you know, I hate to do the plug of the podcast, but the, I, I had this episode called the Godfather of fake news where there's a guy who just deliberately writes fake news. That was a brilliant episode. Yeah. And he just, he, he does it for clicks, right? And he makes money off of it. And he has in every single post, a disclaimer that says this is satire, but mm -hmm. it still goes viral. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the people who are consuming it don't know what the S means on the the story. They don't understand it. They don't click on the actual story. So the headline seems plausible and the story is absurd. And I think with this, it's the same type of thing, right? You could just have it go around the world and change people's minds and have them either vote on it or make decisions based on something that's that's totally wrong. And I... I think the scariest thing is the idea of the world leaders because mm -hmm. they, they can they can miscalculate in, in terrible, terrible ways. Well, yeah. And if you look at this channel, right, and you see what um, the videos the, this person is producing, I mean, there is a political slant. You've got Bernie Sanders. You've got past presidents. You've got Ayn Rand. I mean, it's hard... I, I th yeah, I'm not sure that they're doing it to necessarily with malice in mind. I think it's just more the juxtaposition of having Frank Sinatra singing, dancing. Graham, queen, I'm isn't it? so glad you're saying that because I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to take your voice and I'm going to have you read <laughs> Pierce Morgan's tweets um, and I'm going to just stream it live. And I'm so, so glad because I, I, I was worried that you think it was unfair that I used your voice. <laughs> and I'll add in some, oh, Pierce, I love you. You're so great. You're fantastic. <laughs> That's okay, right? No one's going to believe that, girl. So now this isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of the story. So uh, a few days go by, right? right? And suddenly the videos reappear. 
Yes. And they reappeared because Google said, actually, the takedown requests were incomplete. And so the YouTube spokesperson told Ars Technica that the videos have been temporarily reinstated pending more information from whoever filed the claims. So now the ball seems to be in Jay-Z's court. And this is really interesting for me. So this is why I come back to the 5,000 subscribers. So, yeah. so for Jay-Z to go after someone with 50,000 subscribers is like an elephant going after a flea. So he will build this person's channel by going after him. Oh. Won't he? Yes, I think so. It's the Streisand effect. Yeah, on a, Streisand effect. On a, whoa, 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 Carole. What? Is it possible that the person who's made the complaint isn't actually Jay-Z, <laughs> but is a deep-faked Jay-Z <laughs> who's making the complaint, and now Google has thought, oh, maybe this wasn't a real complaint, and therefore we're temperate. And now this channel's got all these interest. That's interesting, because you, you, YouTube would not confirm that it was uh, Jay-Z's production company, Rock Nation, that had done it. This is only, the only reason we say that is because the YouTuber himself or herself no, said we've that. got Brian on the podcast. He can unearth all the conspiracies, <laughs> right? You can get to the, for goodness sake, Brian, you've got some, you need something for series two. Can't you look into this? Maybe the most logical explanation is, is Jay-Z has been really comfortable having 99 problems, and now that he has 100, <laughs> he has to get back to equilibrium funny funny and funny. so he has to get rid of this one problem <laughs> told you he was a professional <laughs> sorry is, is that i think that reference may be too hip for me to understand <laughs> so okay i've missed something <laughs> it is okay. it is uh, the the main song for which uh, for which he is known <laughs> i don't know we were, i don't know what to do yeah no, very interesting, Carol. Yeah, well, you're welcome. So, so, so the whole issue is this is kind of cool because satire, like no one's ever gone after Weird Al Yankovic and succeeded just because he did <laughs> satires of all their songs. And as far as I know, he didn't pay for the rights to do that. Everyone knew what was going on. But the gray line between the satire, the pastiche and the hey, that's my face or that's my voice. And I don't want to be fluffing Piers Morgan. Verbally. Can you even copyright your voice? Can you even claim that is my voice and not anybody else's? Because there are people who sound quite like, similar. Like, what else can you copyright if not your voice and how you move and stuff? And it's going to become that world. I think we should. You sound a little bit like um, Marge Simpson's sisters, I've always thought. Yeah, I'm not going to say what you sound like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too polite. Hey, Graham. Yes. So I've got a problem. Yes. I use a cloud service. I put all my files and data up there, and I'm kind of nervous about prying eyes looking at it. Any advice? Yeah, you've got to encrypt it. Because any file which you put on Dropbox or Google Drive or OneDrive or those other sort of cloud services, it could be accessed by that company or indeed law enforcement or any hacker who broke into your account. So what I would recommend is use a piece of software like Boxcryptor. It's what I run on my computer. And any file, before it gets uploaded to those cloud services, gets encrypted with my own keys, which I control. They're offering a fantastic 40% discount to listeners of the Smashing Security Podcast. If you want a Boxcryptor personal license for private use or a Boxcryptor business account, perfect for the self-employed, go to smashingsecurity.com slash Boxcryptor. So the guys behind LastPass log me in. They've put out a report called The Psychology of Passwords, The Online Behavior That's Putting You at Risk. 
And basically, as we do more working and purchasing and socializing online, hackers are chomping at the bit to take a little piece of us away. The best thing you can do is get a password manager to help you make unique and difficult to crack passwords for every single account you have online. Check out LastPass's report for loads more tidbits at smashingsecurity.com forward slash password report. If you listen to our show regularly, you'll know that hackers never stop innovating. Immersive Labs gives security professionals practical and gamified content to keep pace with the latest threats. Sign up to get instant access to more than 24 hours of free labs and a new lab to try out each week. Latest being their red and blue team labs on the salt stack vulnerabilities, which were in the news last week. Go check it out at immersivelabs.com slash smashing. On with the show. And welcome back. And you join us at our favorite part of the show, the part of the show that we like to call Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Brian, if you would. Pick of the Week. <laughs> Thank you very much. Pick of the Week is the part of the show where everyone chooses something they like. Could be a funny story, a book that they've read, a TV show, a movie, a record, a podcast, a website, or an app. Whatever they wish. It doesn't have to be security related necessarily. Really hope it's not this week. Well, mine. I almost considered making this my main story on the podcast this week. It's not really strictly speaking security related necessarily, but kind of anyway, see what you think. Uh, my pick of the week is a blog post by a chap called Ranjan Roy, and I will link to it in the show notes so you can check it out some more. But he's talking about a friend of his and his friend owns a few pizza restaurants. And for 10 years, his friend resisted offering delivery of his pizzas because he was like, I'm a classy joint, right? I'm not offering deliveries. Come in, have the in-restaurant experience. It'll be better than Domino's. Take away, right? do you do that? I don't know. Oh. I don't have that information. Not much research. Okay. <laughs> Brian, see, this is, a, this is what we work with. <laughs> but then something odd happened. Okay. Then something odd happened. This guy who ran the pizza restaurants began to get complaints from customers complaining about their deliveries, saying, I got the wrong pizza, the pizza was cold. And this restaurant was like, well, we don't, what? We, we don't do deliveries. What are you talking about? What do you complain? And he turned out when he looked up, up his own shop on Google, there was a delivery option listed in the Google listing. And it had been put there by an organization called DoorDash. Okay. DoorDash, I think. Uh, they're like a, they're like Deliveroo or Uber Eats. They're an online delivery service, right? Who work with different restaurants. Now, the guy who owned these pizza restaurants had never arranged for DoorDash to deliver his pizzas. DoorDash had taken it upon themselves to do that, and they'd rather <laughs> provocatively listed themselves. So they were going they, over and buying pizzas. That's right. This, this was the thing. They didn't have the proper bags for the pizzas, so they'd arrive cold, and, you know, it wasn't always brilliant service. But it was the genuine restaurant employees who were wasting time dealing with all the bad reviews and the customer complaints, right? So they were a bit miffed about this. But then, when they were looking at the listing on DoorDash, um, as to how you could order pizzas for delivery from their own restaurant, they noticed something odd, which was they sold pizzas for $24, but you could have the same pizza delivered by DoorDash for just $16. Oh, I thought you were going to say they were adding on. I was like, no, well, no, no, no. It's <laughs> $8 less. And apparently the mistake DoorDash had made is that they were scraping, they scrape restaurant websites their menus and their pricing. So DoorDash had taken the price for a plain cheese pizza, scraped it off the website, and somehow they had applied it to a speciality pizza with loads and loads of toppings. 
So like you said, someone could pay DoorDash $16. DoorDash would go into the restaurant, pay $24 for the pizza, and, and deliver it. So what does the owner of the restaurant do? He orders 10 of his own pizzas via DoorDash. Brilliant. He was charged $160. The DoorDash driver then shows up, pays him $240. Brilliant. And takes away the pizzas. So he's making money. Well, it's keeping um, his costs down. Now, now the, story, the story goes on from there, and it's well worth a read. But um, I will, I'm, I'm bookmarking it. Right I, now. I, I would recommend it. So um, yeah, so uh, there's actually some hope I think for restaurants during the pandemic uh, who maybe don't offer delivery. Yeah, maybe there's some intermediary who'll do it and actually make you money in the process. Yeah, you just order your own pizzas to be delivered <laughs> to the kitchen around the back. When AI fuck ups work in your favour, <laughs> yeah. And that is why it is my pick of the week. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. Brian, what's your pick of the week? Mine is very much not security related, and that's because okay. I think in the hellscape we live in, you want to live <laughs> away from it and ex- escape a bit. And so what I've been doing is watching a lot of old stuff. Ah, uh, oh, wonderful. And so what I've gotten into recently is one of the weirdest shows that I like. It's called Iron Chef Japan. When it was originally <laughs> broadcast in Japan, of course, it was not called Iron Chef Japan. But uh, it was. It's it's one of the weirdest cooking shows you'll ever see it's incredibly over I've, the top i've never seen it so what, what what's what's okay. the deal with iron chef so Japan? what you start with is you have this like really elaborate introduction that chairman kaga who's like the host uh has like this you know this massive swelling music behind him and like quotes from french chefs and things and then he takes this bite out of a bell pepper and that's like the intro and <laughs> the way that the setup is is you have these three iron chefs uh, Iron Chef Chinese, Iron Chef French, Iron Chef Italian, sometimes Iron Chef Japanese. And there is a theme ingredient that a challenger will battle them on within Kitchen Stadium, which is custom built for this yeah. show. Okay. That's kind of like Iron Chef. I don't even know if he knows Iron Chef at all. Do yes. You? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, no. Yes, no, this is Iron no. Chef. Okay. So yeah. Iron Chef America is like a ripoff of Iron Chef Japan and yeah. way worse. Okay. Anyway. Oh, I didn't know that. So, didn't know that. so the, yeah, because Iron Chef Japan ran from 1993 to 1999 and it shows. <laughs> um, so the point is that they, these Iron Chefs come out of the floor with like dry ice and like, again, like lots of, lots of It's music. like the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, it's amazing. And then there's like this, uh, this massive like uh, sheet over the theme ingredient and Chairman Kaga, who's wearing a kimono, comes down and like unveils it as the crescendo of the music happens. And there's like a series of like tomatoes. And then they have an hour to make between three and six dishes using the, that theme ingredient as the main thing. And they're like rushing around and stuff. And then they have like various like B-list celebrities from the Japanese 1990s to judge them. Like an opera singer who will like say, oh, this is really great. And then like the, the next person is actually a food critic and they're like, this is garbage. And of course, you know, it's, it, it's like, it's just the most incredibly weird Japanese show. And I love it. And it's, it gets your mind off of the pandemic like nothing else. <laughs> I've been binging recently on Ali McBeal oh, um, right. from 20-odd years ago. Oh, I bet you love her. Turn, turn, <laughs> oh. Turns out, at 20-odd years' distance, it's perhaps not the most... <laughs> You're watching some of these characters and just thinking, that's outrageous. <laughs> like, the guy she's in love with, he is a bastard. <laughs> yes. the guy she, it's just like, what a git. 
Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. Anyway, fascinating. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, excellent. Well done, uh, Brian. Crow, what's your pick of the week? Last week, my neighbor says to me, hey, have you heard the Rabbit Hole podcast? And I'm like, what's Rabbit Hole? The podcast from the New York Times. And he said, you have to listen, you have to listen, you have to listen. So as I was doing some gardening last few days, I have been uh, listening to Rabbit Hole. I've listened to three or four so far, and I'm totally hooked. What, what's it about? Kind of like a fascinating little glimpse into like internet and humans and how they both work together. So but the first part was a three-parter on this guy called Caleb. And he had offered the journalist, uh, Kevin Roos, his entire YouTube history for four years. Can you imagine doing that to a journalist? <laughs> That's brave. Isn't it? But amazing. And Kevin Roos then went and also looked at the algorithms that YouTubes were using and when the algorithms changed and tried to match the patterns to see if there was switches in his, how he viewed the world or what he was viewing. It's totally fascinating. It's totally so you mean, so, so was there like a political bent or something? Or was it, the thought that he's being manipulated? No, if it's more manipulation, but it's basically the engine says, oh, you like this? Let me give you more of it. Oh, you like this? Let me give you more of it. Oh, you like this? Let me give you more of it. And really underline the points. You think everyone's thinking that way. You enjoy Iron Chef Japan, Brian? Give, I'll give you more men in kimonos. <laughs> yeah. More vegetables More vegetables. Can't wait. Uh, <laughs> um, so anyway, Really, really interesting. And it's true. Like, if you think about, you probably look up chess stuff all the time. And then yes. probably in your feed, it's always offering you new, probably the same chess videos you've seen millions and millions of times. You're looking for new games, potentially. <laughs> and you're finding, why am I always being referred back to these same ones all the time? Anyway, you can listen to the podcast mm -hmm. and find out. It's really good. Um, I even reached out to Kevin Roos to see if he wanted to come on the podcast. So let's see. It's that nope. good. In the meantime, go listen to it. <laughs> Go listen to it. It's called A Rabbit Hole from the New York Times. There is a link on our webpage and show notes. Sounds fascinating. I mean, what a thing to do to share your four-year history. Yeah. You. I mean, if, was he aware that he had this history all this time? Because when, whenever I've realised that something is storing a history of me, I just work out how to turn it <laughs> off and delete it as quickly as possible. At the time, yeah. Sorry, at the time that he was sharing with the journalist, he knew. And that becomes right. clear later in the uh, episodes. Okay. Did he have any ability to uh, selectively delete? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I did feel, based on the information, I felt the New York Times weren't basically salaciously going through it and trying to show anything that embarrassed him. But I also felt that they that what they did um, call attention to showed a kind of route. You could see how that route would happen. So, you know, there's artistic license and, you know, there's curation happening there. But at the same time, there's an interesting um, approach to looking at how the internet might be shaping our brains. Okay. Well, I guess your recommendation sounds good to me. That just about wraps it up for this week. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm sure lots of our listeners would love to follow you online or find out more about your podcast. What's the best way for folks to do that? So it's uh, at Brian Kloss on Twitter, uh, which is K-L-A-A-S, and the Power Corrupts podcast is what it's called. It's anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And very good it is too. And Good luck with those upcoming awards. And you can follow us on Twitter at Smash Insecurity. No G, Twitter wouldn't allow us to have a G. And you can also make sure that you never miss another episode of Smash Insecurity by subscribing in your favourite podcast app. And as always, thank you, brilliant, loyal listeners, for your support and all your suggestions. Also, a huge thank you to this week's Smashing Security sponsors, Box Cryptor, Immersive Labs, and LastPass. Their support helps us give you this show for free. 
Oh, and stay tuned after the show for our special interview with Rachel Stockton. Check out smashingsecurity.com for past episodes, sponsorship details, and information how to get in touch with us. Until next time, cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was a lot of fun. So thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Rachel Stockton. It's been a while. It has been a while, Carol. (laughs) And a lot has changed. More than I would have predicted has changed since we've last spoken. Yes, yes. My hair is much longer. (laughs) I'm a a little more, um, shall we say, ashen. Ashen is the word. (laughs) Now, things at work must have changed particularly a lot for a company like you because it wasn't down tools time for LogMe, and was it? You guys must have been really busy. Yeah, yeah, it has been a very busy couple months throughout the entire business, making sure that businesses have what they need so people can meet, so they can access the data that they need, and that they can do it securely. So we've really been trying to make sure that our customers are having what they need so that they can continue their business as much as possible. Yeah, it's the first time I actually think of it, but I'm thinking of all these models that companies would have had on predicting how an environment will work, right? Like, this is our market, and this is what our market requires of us. And suddenly, that flips on its head. So what changes have you seen from your customers? You know, it's it's so interesting. I think there is... Oh, gosh, I'm going to quote high school musical. <laughs> but there is this we have element. been spending a lot of time at home these days. <laughs> there is this element of everybody being in it together and really trying to solve the problems. You know, how do we make sure you are more productive at home as a worker, but also as an individual? And, uh, you know, on the last pass side, we spent a lot of time on businesses, but we also spent a lot of time making sure consumers are safe. And one of the things, you know, that being at home and having all of our stores shut down, I think has really driven is uh, like, I know myself, I've set up so many more online accounts, like just trying Mm. to find different places to get food delivery, you know, where can I get sort of the best meat and all of this different stuff. And Mm -hmm. all of those accounts, more passwords, and all my friends are doing the same thing. And there's so much more online shopping. So we're really taking our real lives that were outside and with people and then moving it more, much more virtual. You know, it's interesting. I've been using a password manager for so long. I can't think of the last time I created a password where I had to kind of go, okay, what random five words can I put together that I'll actually remember? Mm-hmm. So obviously there's still people out there that do that. And you guys pulled together a pretty interesting report. I had a read of it last night and this morning, and there's some really good stuff in there. I loved how you narrowed down the riskiest behaviors. Maybe we could start there and go through some of that. You know, we did a survey of a bunch of consumers, regular people, not not business people. <laughs> Just Joe folks like you and me. Yeah. yeah. And um, try to better understand password practices. And I'm also a psychology minor from many, many years ago, but I'm so interested in the why and the catalyst of human behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think one of our biggest takeaways is this concept of dissonance, which I think we're all very familiar now, right? Which is, mm-hmm. I know I need to be doing one thing, but I'm really doing another. And you get that friction in between. And what we mm-hmm. found from this report is, you know, I'll tell you, people out there 
they're really smart. They know that using the same kind of password or variation or reusing the password is really risky. But more than two thirds of people still do it. <laughs> okay, that's so interesting. So people know, I've been banging on this 20 years now, it's part of my career. So, so people now know, this generation knows they have to use different passwords, but they, they don't know how to, or it's too much work, do you think? You know, I think there are a couple of things. One is there's an element of control, right? Access. A password is a key. I want the key to my house. I want the key to my accounts. I want to know it myself. Mm. And by asking people to create really complex passwords, that takes away that sense of control. Because what we also found is people are afraid of forgetting their login information and they want to mm. be in control of this password. But the problem is that control is making people have risky behavior. And a product manager that I used to work with gave just, I think, the best example um, of where passwords need to go from sort of a human perspective. We need to think of passwords like we think of phone numbers. I, I know my phone number. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And mm -hmm. I'm okay with that because I have my phone. And so we need to think about passwords too. We don't need to know our passwords because we have tools like LastPass and other password managers that can remember that for us. I wonder if it's like bank details. Like if someone were to ask you, do you know what your bank account number is? Would you be able to say, yes, it's this? Or oh, would gosh. you have no idea? No, I would have, I would have no idea. Yeah. So I think there is, it is part of it, but with passwords, we use them so, so much more often. I think mm. the other piece too, right? So you want to be in control and, you know, we are all, you know, slightly self-centered. And mm. <laughs> um, I think that we believe that in the end, you know, nobody really cares that much about me. Nobody's going to go after Rachel Stockton in my bank account, in my retail accounts, because, you know, whatever. It's almost but, like, who am I? Yeah. I'm not I'm not a celebrity. I'm not loaded. I don't have anything that anyone really wants. Yeah. Why am I valuable? I can't see it. Therefore, people are just making a storm in a teacup. But you know what? It's not you. <laughs> it's not about me. It's about right. the hundreds of thousands of records. We are just a number. It's about mm. the hundreds of thousands of records that are being stolen. And it's about the algorithms and uh, the power that hackers have in their own systems to use and plow through that information to then take those passwords and not only get into the accounts that they stole from, but then use those passwords and try various variations to get into the plethora of other accounts that you have, including your work accounts. Mm -hmm. um, so it goes beyond just you. They're not after you, but guess what? They're going to find you anyway, and you're still worth money to them. Yeah. So so basically, you've got this situation where people have to work from home. They're setting up more online accounts. They are frustrated because there's too many passwords to remember. They're either using the same password or using small variations of it. And this is basically, what's it called? Like a red flag to a bull, I guess, mm -hmm. for those hackers out there. So this was a worldwide report. So did you guys look at different countries? Were there differences? Yeah, you know, there are there are some differences. Like one of the things that is the same is there is still a very high level of awareness, and, and that's good. You know, but one mm. thing that we saw in Germany is that only really about 30% of them are using this variation of one to two passwords versus globally 66%. So there does seem to be a little bit more action-oriented there and maybe a little bit less dis dissonance. 
So that means in the rest of the world, more than 60% of people are using just one password for all accounts. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. And then in Germany, only 30 are doing that. So they're the lowest that you guys were able to spot. That, yes, that seemed to be the most aware and action-oriented, like linking that awareness to the action-oriented. A couple of the other things that we saw even beyond passwords regionally was multi-factor authentication. For example, in Singapore, which is a region we don't talk that much about, we actually saw a big increase in multi-factor authentication use, both from a work perspective, which the end user really can't control, that's up to the business, but from a um, consumer perspective too, with more than 70% of people responding, that Mm. they are using multi-factor authentication to protect their consumer accounts, I think, which which is great. That's really interesting. I wonder if legislation had any part to play in that. Oh, uh, yes, I definitely think so. There's been some very strong legislation in Singapore and actually all across Europe as well um, that's that's driving a lot of this. Um, There's some Mm -hmm. upcoming legislation in Brazil, so a whole entirely other region where they actually understand a little bit better that their accounts are valuable to a hacker. So I think that there's still a lot of education going on regionally. And a lot of it is driven both by, I think, businesses. And what I mean by that is I'm going to say like the websites that you shop at, um, trying to one, educate people a little bit more about uh, having um, tougher passwords, putting those requirements in, but also making multi-factor authentication more available and having more integrations. I think, you know, a lot of it too has to do with like an erosion of trust between consumers and companies. You know, there's been a lot of companies in the press that have either been breached or they've claimed they've had great security and they haven't had great security. And people are just kind of like, who do I trust? Yeah. And that's got to be challenging, right? So how how do you go about building trust? What What can you tell companies to do to help build trust, to help improve their businesses right now? I think the key piece is transparency. So when people are signing up for accounts, you know, put those requirements for best practices in there, right? So you force the hand, number one. Two, ensure that the consumer, that we understand what you're doing to protect our information. And Mm. then if something happens, let us know. It becomes even more frustrating when it's five months down the line. Mm. Um, You know, when we read those articles that these breaches have happened and now we're being notified, we understand, I think, now that breaches really are part of everyday news. But it's really, I think, how people are handling them and how companies are handling them that helps either one develop that trust or rebuild that trust once one happens. Mm. And I think having a password manager actually allows you to slowly build trust with these people because it allows you to have a very unique, long, complicated, so complicated, it's almost impossible to guess password. In a way, this is a way you are taking control, right? I mean, if you want to be in control of your password, it's not about memorizing them. It's about putting them in something to ensure you can create the strongest one possible that you will not forget. It's unique. And if and when it gets breached, you only have to worry about that one account. You don't have to worry about the other 10 that are using that. Mm -hmm. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, you can easily go in, change that password, and then you're protected again. Exactly. That point, I haven't thought about that, but exactly. If your password gets breached and you're using the same password across your hundreds or even maybe thousands of accounts, 
You have to go through every single one and change those manually if you don't have unique passwords for each one. Yes. And that one thing that we found out too is that even after a breach, 50% of people don't even change their passwords. And it comes back to the idea that why me? Why would they target me? Yeah. Yeah. I think the one other piece that's really important to put up here too is one area that can help with any kind of breaches, but it does ask more of us, right, is using multi-factor authentication as a consumer. Um, Mm. So, you know, we talked a little bit about it regionally overall, which is some good news, is there is an increase we found in this survey of both the awareness of multi-factor authentication, you know, something you have, something you are, something that you know, right, Mm -hmm. that combination, and that use with more than 54% of people globally are using it for some set of personal accounts that are allowing it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important because then even if that really secure password does get breached, you're still protected with multi-factor authentication. So that account is still protected. Yeah, no, totally. I'm a big fan of multi-factor authentication. I understand it can be, it's a little bit more painful, but I think it's really important to have. So I love having something you know, something you are, something you have. I think using two of those at every opportunity is great. Yeah, I think it's important because let's also be real. With all of us working from home and being lucky that we're able to, There are a lot more phishing attacks because we're all getting a lot more email from, you know, the core functions, HR, Mm -hmm. IT, facilities, keeping us informed. So there are a lot more reasons why we may be contacted by odd people within our organization. 100%. And, And so I think that's also why it's important to think about password management as well, because if you need to be getting to a site, you can get to that through the password manager. If you're clicking on a site and being asked to fill in your password and it's not automatically being filled by your password manager, you know, look at that site. Is that the right one? I think there are ways we can also use these tools to help prevent some of the increase in attacks that we're seeing as well beyond just protecting the password. Mm. Now, you guys, obviously, you have your enterprise solution, but you also make LastPass password management tools available for free for consumers. Is that Mm -hmm. right? We sure do. So there's no excuse for people not to use a password manager out there. This is the time, isn't it? It really is. You know what's the best about it? (laughs) The best about the free product, to be honest, is we spend now, sorry, I'm sure everybody's, (laughs) but I spend so much time on my mobile phone. And... I have yeah. a, I have the iPhone and I know exactly how much time I spend on it. Thank you so much. <laughs> I hate getting that, that report. <laughs> but I think it's also important to recognize that these same things, you know, you want to be able to have this access on your mobile device, your phone, your tablet, as well as your computer. And so being able to access all your passwords, no matter where you are, I think is really important too. And I want people to understand that that, that's out there now. You don't have to worry about getting into your accounts if you're on your phone and you don't know your password. You know, it's one solution for all your platforms. Yeah, it's amazing. So listen, I, next week we have uh, my cousin is coming on. Uh, she's like an actress, comedian who's based in Toronto, but and she's trapped in an apartment like millions of other people out there. But And her life's obviously changed dramatically, right? She's mm-hmm. not, you know, she's on stage. But one thing that hasn't changed is she's never given a hoot about security. And so the game plan next week is to see if Graham and I can convince her to at least do something to improve her security now. So I'm going to try and get her to go down the password manager route. And I'll let you know how I get on. Oh, I'm so curious. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah. 
because I think that is one of the key things people do. And the reason I like it is it makes your life more simple. All you need to remember is your master password. That's it. So consumers, check it out. Uh, We'll put all the links in the show notes. Rachel, always brilliant to have you on the show. So great to talk to you. My brother says going out now is like playing Pac-Man. You're constantly going down streets and going down blocks. Then you see someone, you turn around, go a different direction. Be chased by ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> don't eat the cherries. You don't know who's touched them before you. 